The boy who lived in the cupboard under the stairs. The boy who lived. The boy with the lightning scar. I really hope you guys know who this is, because if you don't, shame on you. It's Harry Potter. But today we're going to talk about the mastermind behind Harry Potter, Joanne Rowling, or better known as J.K. Rowling, and how she was able to create an extraordinary universe filled with fantastical creatures and magic while dealing with her very own real demons. Welcome to History, Her Story, a podcast where we take inspirational stories throughout history and tell it to you dramatically, dedicated to motivate you in your daily life. My name is Shinjini, and I'm a massive Potterhead. And today, we also have Jeffrey Lee with us. My name is Jeffrey, and I'm also a massive Potterhead. For this week's episode, we will be talking about the mastermind behind the very famous British book series, Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. Joanne Rowling was born on July 31st, 1965 in Chipping, Sodbury, to Peter Rowling and Anne Volant Rowling. As a child, she was dubbed, quote, Rowling Pin. Ooh, I hate people making yeah. puns out of your name. People used to call me a loser. <laughs> you know, like a loser. No, that's so bad. <laughs> well, Shinjini, Genie from Aladdin, but it's not bad. Okay. Um, so she was dubbed Rolling Pin by classmates and hated her name. And little, little did she know that it would eventually become a household name. Her father was an aircraft engineer at the Rolls-Royce factory in Bristol, and her mother was a science technician in the chemistry department at YDN Comprehensive, where Rowling went to school. She uh, also has a little sister named Diane. So Rowling was very close to her mom and had a very good relationship with her, but unfortunately, all good things come to an end. And her mother died of multiple sclerosis in 1990, and her death really affected, affected Rowling greatly, and uh, even some aspects of Harry Potter, which we will get into later. Rowling knew from a very young age that she wanted to be a writer. Uh, she wrote her very first book at the age of six, a story about a rabbit called, quote, Rabbit. And at just age 11, she wrote her very first novel about seven cursed diamonds and the people who own them. And something about the number seven seems very familiar. Yeah, just so, like the number of um, horcruxes that Voldemort has. Or, yeah, or the number people, of Harry Potter, Potter books. Harry yeah! <laughs> so, uh, flash forward a couple uh, years to her college education. She studied French at the University of Exeter after being rejected by Oxford University. And she later regretted choosing to study French because she actually wanted to study English. Uh, Rowling spent about a year in France and graduated. And at this point, um, when she was uh, here, like she had very uh, many jobs and she wasn't really stable with one job. And one of the jobs that she really liked working for was Amnesty International, which is a charity um, which campaigns against human rights abuses throughout the world. Amnesty International is actually one of the many charities that J.K. Rowling has generously supported since her fame and her wealth. So that's how you know she's for real, because fame and wealth hasn't changed changed her. her. Her philanthropy is still the same. Yes. So this is all pre-Harry Potter, um, and at this time she was just kind of pushing through life. She didn't really, I guess, have an aim for anything, and she was just kind of making things work. So now that we're past her childhood and like her teenage years and college years, past the boring part, 
So um, 1990 is really when the sparks started flying and things started to really turn for better and worse. Joe first conceived the idea of Harry Potter on a very long train ride from Manchester to London. So this two hour and 10 minute train ride turned into six hours because the train was delayed. And she just started forming the characters in a very basic storyline in her mind. But she had nothing to write with because her pen died. And then on top of that, she was too shy to ask someone around her for a pen. She just had all this floating around in her mind. However, uh, this storyline turned into the magical world of Harry Potter as we know it. And she roughly mapped out the seven books over about five years. And um, she wrote mostly in longhand, so handwritten, and gradually built up a mass of notes, many of which were scribbled on very random pieces of paper. So I guess you can imagine how her little flat in Clapham Junction looked like. A little like my desk at home, except (laughs) I don't have a masterpiece hidden inside those notes. (laughs) I'm sure all of us, one way or another, can can feel this. So in December of 1990, um, however, something very unfortunate happened. Rowling's mother passed away from multiple sclerosis, as I mentioned before, and this affected her a lot. And uh, she is very close to her mother, as I said, and her own loss of her mother gave an added poignancy of Lily's death in the series. And um, if you don't know who Lily is, I have nothing to say. But for those of you that don't know, Lily is Harry's mother. Uh, Rowling says that her favorite part in Sorcerer's Stone is actually when Harry sees his parents in the Mirror of Erised. So, yeah, so we've seen that throughout the stories, she's put so much of herself, so much personality of herself is evident in her story. So do you think that's why the series is as successful as it is? Totally, yes. Um, I will mention later many people like that she's met before that are incorporated into the books and it's really crazy how many characters were influenced but I think like all authors have that aspect like they have like a little bit of themselves and their lives into their books but her parents for sure um her mother for sure really affected like Harry Potter and Harry's background so uh as we can see Rowling really started to come up with the idea of Harry Potter and as she did her mom died so it's very tragic Hmm. And uh, shortly after her mom died, Rowling moved to Portugal for a fresh start and to be an aspired English teacher. Um, and it was here where she met her very first husband, a man named Jorge Arantes. They started dating, she became pregnant, and they moved in together. Unfortunately, however, they miscarried, and Rowling was devastated. So this was already like really hard on her because she had had a miscarriage and miscarriages take a very very big toll on the mothers yeah so much emotional baggage so much um however they got married in october 1992 and she was finally able to give birth to a daughter jessica uh the next year in july of 1993 um their marriage however was very rocky and consisted of many fights and it got to the point where they had such a fierce argument um, that they split and by all accounts Rowling was thrown out of the house after this argument and that is a big yikes but you know it doesn't matter because look where she is today (laughs) so in December of 1993 Rowling moved back to England in Edinburgh Scotland with her newborn baby Jessica and she said in an interview and I quote 
I'd had a short and quite catastrophic marriage. I had to get my baby back to Britain and rebuild a life and adrenaline kept me going." End quote. So when she returned to Scotland, all she had was her baby Jessica and one suitcase wherein three chapters of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was. And at this point in 1993, her life was in complete shambles. And at her commencement speech to Harvard in 2008, she says, and I quote, I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless, end quote. So she's basically on the verge of being homeless. And she lived in a really cramped apartment with her daughter, Jessica. She's jobless, penniless. So she was really struggling to make ends meet. And at this point, her depression had took a very, very dark turn herself a complete failure where she had fallen and struck out and she was so down that she even had considered suicide on many accounts um she had really hit rock bottom and hard but you know she treated this rock bottom as a conclusion and the feeling that accompanied her failure was acceptance so when you say she treated this rock bottom as conclusion are you saying that like she found solace in seeing that she couldn't get lower yeah so um Basically, what happened was that she was forced to rely on state benefits because at this point she had no job and she wasn't like she didn't she wasn't leading a very stable life. And she spent much of her time writing Harry Potter in cafes and in her home. And she realized, you know, that she was in a situation like that she was in. It could be changed into something more. And um, she realized that she was in this definitive state of failure and she didn't have to worry about what others would think of her or face any more pain because she was at her lowest. So, you know, she just she just really pushed past this and she pushed herself really hard and concentrated and was able to focus all of her energy into this one book. Got it. And eventually she was able to finally finish the first Harry Potter book. So when she published it in the UK, it was known as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, But then when it was published in the US, the publishers thought it'd be better to change it to Sorcerer's Stone so it'd be more appealing to children. And Yeah, I heard that they thought yeah. that philosopher instead of uh, philosopher would be too intimidating to kids in America. Yeah. So then they were like, no, change it to Sorcerer's. So, you know, it's like witchy and like magic. Um, and she received many re- rejections from book publishers when she first sent out the manuscript, specifically 12 major publishing houses imagine Um, that imagine being one of the major publishing houses to skip out on publishing harry potter i'm sure all of them were like hitting themselves on the head for not (laughs) for not taking her but um she was in luck as a very small agreed to publish the book and the story of the publisher barry cunningham and how he said yes to rowling was very surprising like when i read the story i was like wow if he hadn't done what he had done we never would have gotten Harry Potter. But basically, his eight-year-old daughter's enthusiastic reaction to the verse, very first chapter was what pushed him to accept her book. So if he hadn't given her daughter, his daughter, the book, we never would have had Harry Potter. It just... how things turn out. But Cunningham advised her to continue training as a teacher since children's books don't really tend to pay well, um, especially like during that time. And so within the very first few weeks of publication, her book sales really started to take off. And this led her to receiving a full grant from the Scottish Arts Council, enabling her to write full time. 
So after the books were an initial success in the UK, Scholastic, the American publishing books company, uh, agreed to pay a very great amount of money, about $100,000 for the American publishing rights. And at the time, this was an unprecedented amount of children's books. Um, and then I'm sure we know the rest, how Warner Brothers secured the film rights to the books. And then when this happened, um, it directly resulted in a seven-figure sum. So she That's really how we hit got it off. Daniel Radcliffe, uh, uh, Rupert Grin, and Emma Watson. Yeah. So um, right when Scholastic agreed to pay for for the American publishing rights, she really hit it off. Like it just started, like you know, rolling for her. Um, haha, <laughs> rolling for her. <laughs> that was unintentional. <laughs> okay, so. We can for sure see that, you know, Rowling struggled for a very long time to get to where she is today and she stayed resilient in the fight. And as I mentioned before, she incorporated many different elements of her life into the books. The first that I had mentioned was her mother's death, which partially resulted in her having Harry's parents die, as well as having Harry see his parents in the Mirror of Erised, or a Mirror of Desire. And additionally, in the third book, some very sinister characters are introduced to us, the Dementors. Um, and if you don't know what Dementors are, have mercy on your soul because I will not be sending an expected return of your way. <laughs> but Dementors are basically wraith-like dark creatures that feed on human happiness and thus generating feelings of dep depression and despair in any person that's close to them. And if you're lucky, you'll even get a kiss from them, resulting in your soul getting sucked out from your body. So this wonderful creature was represented... Um, represented her depression and the dark times that she had to overcome in her life and I know while she was writing the books she was still like she was still kind of defeating her depression so even when like after she became famous um there are many parts in the books like little parts that I remember reading about where like she wanted to kill off certain characters because like she was just so low but mm. the dementors were like really channeling her depression Generate feelings uh, of depression and despair in any person in close proximity, just like pessimists. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, not to mention many of the characters in the book were also inspired by real-life people that Rowling had interactions with. For example, Severus Snape was inspired by an old science teacher, John Nestleship, at a school that Rowling attended in South Wales. Ooh, um, so I'm guessing that they didn't have that great of a teacher-student relationship. Yeah, so she said, um, like online, I've read many articles, and like he has like the same bone structure, like the bony structure that uh, Snape does, and like the same greasy black hair. And I actually looked up a picture of him, and it's really funny how Snape's character fits the image. It's like he's really bony and like really pale. So I guess, yeah, I, I guess like she just wanted to incorporate him. He must have done something that she really didn't like for. So I don't know, <laughs> but. Um, Harry Potter was also inspired by an Ian Potter who lived four doors down from her in her home near Bristol. So not only did they share the same last name Potter, but he was also a very mischievous trickster when he was young, forming an unwelcoming habit of placing slugs on his friend's picnic plates. Eat slugs, Malfoy! <laughs> and um, encouraging Rowling to run through wet concrete with her sister. Oh my god. What happened? Now that you say it, the slugs that was probably yeah. wow that's very interesting okay so um there were many more characters in harry potter that rowling based off of people that she knew but we'll just keep it at harry so rowling's life for sure was one hell of a ride and she is 
one very resilient woman. She had a net worth of $1 billion in 2004. I repeat, $1 billion, but lost a billion dollar status when she donated a lot of money to charity, um, one being Amnesty International. And her net worth now stands at $850 million. And to put it in perspective, she's richer than Queen Elizabeth. What? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's pretty crazy. So I think it's very safe to say that, you know, J.K. Rowling survived and she won at life. And she created a legendary storyline filled with incredible characters, um, such rich backstories. And even after 21 years, which is when the very first book was published, we still talk about Harry Potter. And, so you know, she left- about, Yeah, so speaking about the leg- legendary storyline of Harry Potter, when I heard that you were going to do the podcast on J.K. Rowling, I started reading through all the books and I started noticing how things like uh, they talked about Sirius Black's motorcycle in the first book, like Hagrid getting the motorcycle. And this is just for people who've read the series, but and then him, Sirius Black, appearing in Prisoner of Azkaban. And even in yeah. the first book, when Hagrid said there's a dragon in the Gringotts vault and then the dragon breaking out in the last book, when the trio, Harry Potter, Hermione and Ron uh, robbed Gringotts in the last movie. Do you think she planned all of this? Okay, so, like, from that train ride from Manchester to London um, and, like, those five years, I think she really focused on, like, like the maybe, like, the first book and the last book. And she placed, like, all these hidden clues throughout the book. Like, I know most people say, like, book number two is useless and they most people say it's the most boring book, but book number two actually, like, isn't useless because, like, a lot of the horcruxes are mentioned in book two and i'm pretty sure she like this was her plan all along and it was to like hide like little east from book four it really like starts getting more like young adult because mm. that's like when voldemort gets like involved and so like after and harry starts hitting puberty yes <laughs> and um after the seventh book like when everything is you know like concluded and like a final ribbon is beautifully written i think it was like her plan all along to like just hide all of these little things and i'm sure like that train ride was like just a very basic storyline but she must have had thousands of notes like scattered among her flat like okay in this book i'm gonna put this little clue and then in this book i'm gonna put this little clue but it's just like mind-boggling how she did that and like made this incredible like storyline and honestly yeah really really and she left her mark on the world and is continuing to leave her mark in the world with new stories, movies, and plays such as Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Um, and what we can take away from this iconic woman is that we must push through. And as I mentioned before, when she was at her lowest point, she was able to turn it into something positive. And with the platform below us, we can move with more clarity and more confidence. With less risk, we have the incentive to chase the reward more aggressively. And I know that it's not easy to think like this when we're at rock bottom. Feelings of inadequacy don't just go away because we want them to, and that's okay. You just have to accept that you can either stay where you are or falling for sure decided to be more. And she also shows us that we can't just give up. If she had given up after being rejected 12 times by the big publishers, we may never have been blessed with a little scrawny 11-year-old boy with the bright green eyes and lightning bolt scar. Great work isn't always recognized right away and the likeliness of success largely depends on the effectiveness of output and the consistency of effort. We always have to push forward in spite of whatever is thrown at us. Failure is an inevitable part of life and it cannot 
and it can stop us from aspiring and achieving the goals that we have. But dealing with it is a skill and the psychological preparation can go a very long way. As with all the matters of the mind, however, it's much easier said than done. You have to actively fight it to beat it. Yeah, um, I think you mentioned earlier about having a platform below us. Are you talking about a platform nine and three quarters? Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but um, there's something else I wanted to mention. You know, J.K. Rowling, she's such a great example of paying it forward with her philanthropic work, but I also wanted to mention uh, the sort of writing aspect. So I think that J.K. Rowling wrote about something which I think a lot of writers are hesitant. So she wrote about a main character who's opposite her gender um, with circumstances, mm -hmm. For example, him being an orphan that I think other writers would have shrank from or written not very genuinely because they haven't experienced uh, those things before. Yeah. So they can't put it into um, into writing very well. But I think because of her experiences, she was able to write those circ circumstances so well and people picked up on that. So which is why Harry Potter, partly why Harry Potter is so successful. And I think that's very, very admirable. Yeah, for sure. And another thing that I like really realized, like when, once you said that she was, you know, she wrote about like this orphan boy. I just think like Rowling has like this way of writing, like uh, for people that have read Harry Potter, um, her duels are insanely like they're written so well. Like mm. um, Jeffrey, I don't know, like, well, did you say you read all the books again? Did you reread all Not of them? Not all of them. Um, okay. I was reading a lot and then my mom was like, you gotta study for the SAT, so... Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. um, in the seventh book, like, actually from the fifth book, if you just read the duels, like, they're insanely written, like, it's almost as if, like, you're in them and, like, you're just seeing everything and how vividly they're explained. And I've always wondered, like, how she's written them so well because, like, she's never actually physically fought anyone. So, you I don't know, know like... <laughs> I, well, actually, I don't know that, but, like... It's just, it's just like really appalling because as you said, like she wrote from a male's perspective, which is something like maybe a, a female author would have shrank, shrank away from. But like there are just these different parts like in the book, these little parts where I just get so, like so surprised at how well they're written. But at the same time, she is like an amazingly like well-educated, like well-written author. Yeah. But the perspective changes reminded me of that. Mm -hmm. So we will now end with one of my very favorite J.K. Rowling quotes said by the great Albus Dumbledore. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. So that will conclude the story. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed this, his this episode of History, Her Story. This has been Shinjini. And Jeffrey. And we will see you next time. <laughs>